Hello, and welcome to Our Bodies, Our Voices podcast. We're your hosts, Joanna and Becca. We're two women in our 30s, and we interview individuals and experts on topics related to fertility, family building, career, exercising our voices, and more. On today's episode, I'm interviewing my co-host, Becca, and her husband, Lee. Those of you who listened to our intro episode may remember that Becca and Lee have had several twists and turns on their journey to start a family. In this episode, we'll dive deeper into their story, including a design thinking exercise that helped them plan their future as a family. We'll learn how Becca discovered a rare health condition that shaped her fertility considerations and how their experiences with pregnancy loss have emboldened them to push past shame and help others. I'm thrilled to share this special episode with you. Lee and Becca, I'd love for each of you to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself. It's Becca, your co-host of Our Bodies, Our Voices. I'm 34 years old and married to Lee. We've been together for seven years and married for four since 2016. We live in San Francisco. I've been here my whole life in the Bay Area. I have worked most of my career in healthcare and education and love sharing stories and hearing people's stories. So this podcast is dear to my heart and I'm excited to share more of our journey because I think it's been really helpful for us throughout all of us to hear from other people. I'm Lee. I'm 34. I've been in San Francisco since 2010. Met Becca in 2013. I'm here to tell our story together. I'd love to know a little bit about your relationship. How did you meet? How's your relationship progressed over time? I was in grad school in Berkeley. And in my 20s, I really only had one kind of pretty serious relationship. I was ready to start dating again and wanted to find someone who I felt was really a good match for me, who I wasn't maybe meeting in my day to day. I signed up for OkCupid. I like to joke that I was looking for like a nice Jewish guy, taller than 5'10", who lived near BART in San Francisco. (laughs) And I met Lee. He was my third OkCupid date. I'm 5'10 and a half. And lives one block from BART in San Francisco. (laughs) What I'm grateful for is I had a summer internship that summer at a company where I really only worked a nine to five, and it really created so much space for our relationship to take off that summer. And I think a sign for me that this was really the real deal was Lee was going down to Brazil for work and invited me to come with him. And I think we'd been dating six weeks and I was like, no question I was really career-driven at the time, and that was a huge thing for me to do without even second-guessing it. So I flew down to Brazil. We had this crazy six-day, five-night where we were traveling all across the country. I also accidentally imported poison oak down to Brazil and gave it to Lee. I had gone hiking two days before my flight and gotten poison oak, so we were both totally uncomfortable but just laughed about it. And I think still had such a great week together. And, you know, I think after seven weeks of dating, it was kind of like, this might be my life partner. I remember when you messaged me on OkCupid and you're like, hey, and I was like, hi, (laughs) you know, what's going on? And usually on these dating services, women are not typically forward, as forward as Becca was, but she was serious. She was working on it, getting a job done, find the right person (laughs) for her and checkbox next thing. I moved in after we've been dating for 11 months. And then we did long distance because I did my last semester of grad school in London. After that, we lived together for a year and then you proposed. Yeah. My mom, when you moved in, she was like, is this temporary? You know, this woman you just met, like 
you know, very recently, why is he living with you already? And then we were like, no, it's not. And you haven't moved out since. It's been seven years, right? Six years, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so we got engaged after two years, married at three years. And in June will be the seven year of our first date. There's so much there. An okay Cupid success story, being very focused on your goals and making sure that the candidates meet the criteria, and a sense of adventure after such a short period of time, and nothing like a little misadventure to bond people more quickly. Yeah. On the first date, by the way, I was sandwiched in. <laughs> I got there. I was kind of nervous. She made me come to Berkeley and she had was hanging out with a friend, like drinking wine or something. And I was like, wow, this girl's not, it's not a lot. Like it's not a big deal for her. <laughs> Lee, but, what do you think was the key to your success? You made me laugh. Right. Made me laugh. So I'm curious if you remember the first time you talked about building a family. Good question. Both of us have always been able to talk about what we wanted in our future. And definitely it was very clear. We want to be parents. We want to have kids. But for a long time, we just talked about it of this is something that will happen. We really took it for granted. And we didn't necessarily materialize a conversation of when will this happen? How will it happen? If we want these kids, how do we have to think about when do we get started? And I think when we started having real conversations about it, I was 32 at the time and was getting a lot of ads on Instagram and different places about freezing my eggs. I also had a lot of friends who already had children or were just talking about fertility. And that's when I started kind of talking to Lee of like, when are we going to get this started? We know we both want this, but when do we start? I think it was very assumed for us that we would have kids. So I don't really know when the moment happened. I mean, you when did you think you brought it? When did you bring up trying to have kids for the first time? It was in July of 2018 where you said you weren't ready to get started. So I made you go to that egg freezing info session at the fertility clinic. That was a weird period because that was like, okay, I'm ready to get started. You weren't, but you also weren't sure if we needed to freeze eggs. We were kind of at a standstill for a good six months there. Becca, it sounds like seeing the ads, maybe talking to friends, put the idea of a timeline in your mind. Could you say more about what prompted you in that moment in July of 2018? You're like, oh, I think we should get started. I think what was hard for us is Lee and I were having the absolute best time of our lives in the year 30, 31, and 32. 2018 was our, our year of festivals, but in February, we went down to Costa Rica to my cousin is one of the founders of Envision Festival. We went on a trip in Israel and then went to Midburn, and then we were planning to go to Burning Man for our second year. And like I think in some ways, I spent a lot of my 20s just being overly responsible and working so hard and so career focused. And in my early 30s, we had somehow found this balance of the two of us where we were also just really enjoying life and enjoying each other in our relationship. And I was also a little scared of giving that up. A few of my best friends had kids younger in their late 20s. I think they have amazingly fulfilling lives with their children, but they also sometimes talk, oh, it would be so nice to do XYZ or like, you know, you're living this fun life. And then we also have a whole group of friends who are our age and kids are way far away for them. So I think we were in this weird stage where we're kind of straddling two worlds of the friends with kids and the single friends. And I was working really hard at work and wasn't actually sure myself if I felt like I could take on children, but I was starting to get really scared that there might be a challenge and that what I'd taken for granted could be a threat. And so I think that for me was what got me in 2018 really interested in like, is there anything we have to do proactively, like embryo freezing, to make sure that what we've always said we wanted is still a possibility? 
Lee, to the best of your memory, what was going on for you during this time? How are you thinking about what was going on in your life? I think men in general, and maybe I had more than others, but there's sort of this uh, Peter Pan syndrome, like never wanting to grow up and deferring these hard discussions and thinking about in the future. I definitely want to have a kid, but yeah, kids in some ways equals lack of freedom. I do remember trying to put it off. Everyone always would be say to us like, oh, you've got time, you've got time, enjoy. But when Becca had the testing done, that was like, well, well, maybe we don't have time. And then not really wanting to accept that as a real thing was, it was scary. Walk me through the first proactive step that you took towards building your family. We went to the egg freezing info session and kind of learned and figured out like, what would this involve and had discussions. And I think realized that for Lee in particular, he felt like he wanted to wait maybe two more years to get started. And so for me, I said, you know, it's important if we're going to wait, I want to make sure that nothing's a threat. When you think about that two years at that point to the best of your memory, what did you think you'd be able to get done? So then after that, you'd be more focused on family building. I don't know if there was anything to do. It's more like put off the lack of loss of freedom. I guess there's some component of financial stability and being in a place where we're ready to have kids. And that's probably part of it. Being in San Francisco, things are expensive, all of those things. Although we never defined what that meant. We didn't actually put a number out. It was like this feeling, sort of. Mm-hmm. And, and then we went into the fertility clinic and we were 32 at the time. And the doctor was initially just so casual, like you're still young, probably fine. We can check. And then he was doing the ultrasound to check and see how many follicles I have, which say how many eggs you have left more or less. And he got really quiet. And that was when he kind of was like, let's go sit down and chat. And basically said, like, you only have three follicles that I can find. That's about what I would expect for a 42-year-old. This is pretty surprising. I want to do some blood work and some testing and do some genetic testing and figure out why this might happen. But I highly recommend that you freeze embryos now and that you get started with a plan. And I think that was a pivotal moment for us that definitely for me sent me on quite a few months of just trying to figure out what was going on with my body. I took leave the following spring from my job after I found out that I could go through early menopause. And that's when we finally decided to try to freeze embryos. So I took time off just to decompress and and lower my stress level and kind of get my body ready. And that was June, July, 2019. Something we've heard from many people that we've spoken to. And frankly, one of the reasons why we decided to start this podcast is that many people feel like they're alone when they're going through an experience like this, or they hear something that is unexpected about their fertility or experience losses. At this point in time, when you were finding out some pretty significant news that was shifting your timeline and expectations about how you were going to build a family, who did you talk to about that outside of your relationship? I would always tell people the facts, like Becca had this thing, and I explain it the best that I could understand it, honestly. You told a lot of your guy friends. Yeah. Yeah. No one really got it. I mean, some people think, oh, she's not able to have a kid or or she's not likely. I mean, I think the nuance in the condition that Becca has, I mean, maybe you you should elaborate. I found out through gen- a genetic carrier test that I have a mutation on the fragile X gene. And that's this rare genetic mutation where it's a spectrum of level of mutation. So someone who has a full mutation results in children having mental retardation. And there's a lot of attention on fragile X syndrome. 
what they have more recently figured out is that for certain people, they can be carriers and have what they call a pre-mutation or an intermediate mutation. And there's been for men or boys who have that, it doesn't do anything. For women who have a small mutation, there's been recent studies showing that it can lead to earlier onset of menopause and an earlier decline of ovarian reserve or number of eggs. And it's pretty rare. I think one in 400 may have it. And then it's more rare to actually like discover it and realize you have it. And so a lot of women may be carriers and never know because they have children. It doesn't impact them. For a woman like me who's waiting into mid-30s potentially, that's where there was a pretty stark difference. And it was what you would expect to see in terms of the number of eggs or follicles or whatnot was really different. And so when I learned that, Joanna, I think to your point, like we didn't figure out, we didn't understand from the genetic test results we got that that was what was happening until the following May. And so for me, there were a few months where I was just like, what, why is this happening with my body? And I talked about my fertility with all of my girlfriends. It suddenly became a topic that I talked about with everyone. And that was helpful because I think then I had certain friends share back like, oh yeah, I've had issues or I have PCOS. And I started just learning about all these common fertility-related problems that women deal with that I had been previously unaware of. And how did that make you feel to sort of have this new vocabulary, this new awareness? There were a bunch of emotions. I think particularly with reading Tony Weschler's book, Taking Charge of Your Fertility, there was a, some anger of, I cannot believe we're not taught this when we're teenagers, but also a sense of empowerment of, wow, now I actually do know all of this and I feel like I understand my body so much better and I understand what my options are and I feel like I'm learning information to make a better decision. But it was a lot to navigate. It was a lot of emotional energy and time. And it was defeating. You know, I think particularly when we did finally do that round of embryo freezing in July of that summer and we got nothing out of it. I took high amounts of hormones. We ended up getting 11 eggs. We only made it to one embryo and it was not genetically viable. I'll direct this question at Lee. So much of modern relationships are defined or characterized as a partnership. So I'm curious if Becca developing this deeper understanding of her body at all impacted the way that you thought about yourself as a partner. The thing that I remember thinking is like, it's kind of surprising that there are so many mysteries about your own fertility. The thing that Becca didn't say too is the way she figured this out was kind of crazy. She was reading these books every night. And one night she basically was like, oh my God, like this is this thing. And and I kind of get wrestled up and she tries to explain this. There's this mutation and I'm reading this and I know why we ha I have a low uh, follicle count because of this thing. And then we woke up in the morning and then I think you called the doctor and Becca figured out that she had this issue. So, you know, then I guess it's like, I'm a part of her own discovery because, you know, in some ways you're kind of like, oh, she goes to the doctor, there's this doctor-patient relationship. But in this case, like I'm with her as she's doing her own self-exploration and like literally having to take her own health into her own hands. What about the um, design thinking workshop I led you through? I would love to have you explain that. You mean the post-it notes all over the house? Yeah. <laughs> We basically did this exercise where we created our values and then we wrote things we saw we wanted to see in the future and things that were important on post-its. And we rearranged them and we basically planned our entire life in 30 <laughs> minutes, if I recall. It was a few hours. Ah. But when all of a sudden the fertility stuff came up, I was like, huh, there's a lot that we haven't really sat down and talked about. Even now that we're married, there's a lot that we need to jointly agree on for the future. And what else have we not gotten aligned on? 
And so I think the goal was like, write out areas of our life that are important, and then give each of us a chance to write out and share what our vision was of what we see. And then figure out what are areas where we're aligned and what are areas where we need to have conversations that we maybe just haven't had. I think the fertility just kicked off a lot of really important conversations. And we now are so much more aligned on knowing what the other person envisions for the further future. If there are some couples listening to this right now and they have not started their family uh, building journey and maybe haven't had some of the conversations that you facilitated through the design thinking workshop, what would you advise them to start with? The order I would do is first just spend some time as individuals and understand what's most important to you as and really get clear on what's true for you, what you want, what makes you happy and identify what do you think about your future that you may take for granted. Then talking about that with your partner and making sure you understand if there's alignment or identifying if there's areas that are different. And then I think specifically for thinking about having children, this is a tough one because that's one where timing can be important. And for women, fertility declines. I think some planning and thinking about it is helpful while keeping in mind that you can't control it. You can't plan everything. And there's a lot that's completely out of your control. And you might have a lot of disappointments or challenges. And also that the process is often much less efficient than you think. So I think there was a part of us that was like, when we decide that we're finally ready, we will have a child in nine months. And we've learned that's completely not true. And I now have heard from friends who I thought just like decided to get pregnant, got pregnant, had a baby that like it actually took them multiple years, but they didn't talk about it. And so I think part of us sharing our story is to share things have not gone according to plan. Hopefully it can help other people as they think about their future. Yeah, I think one thing that is definitely true, and I'm sure you've talked about this on the podcast, the whole point of it is like, no one talks about this stuff. There's such a strong sense of shame around fertility, and it's totally out of control, and it shouldn't be that way. Is there any advice or guidance you would give to folks who want to support other people in their community, but maybe aren't sure the most appropriate way to broach that conversation with them? I always think that the best way to get anyone to say anything is to lead with your own vulnerability. So I think if you have a sense that someone's dealing with something, go tell them your problems and you'll probably get some stuff back. That was so true for me. And I think we've heard this on the podcast from others as well. But when I had my first miscarriage, that was such a shitty few weeks. When I learned I was going to have a miscarriage, I didn't know of a single friend except for one woman who had had a miscarriage. And this woman had written a blog about it. And her blog was like, no one talks about this. So when I learned I would have mine, I didn't really know who to reach out to. And it was only when I started just being like, well, I'm going to tell my friends that I realized I knew at least five other women who'd had at least one miscarriage and was like, I can't believe no one's talking about this. One of my friends dropped off a candle and a card that just had a skunk on it and said, this stinks. And I actually really appreciated it. She was just like, yeah, this sucks. Whereas I think some people were trying to like, a lot of people were very much like, I'm so sorry. And like... I really am sad that this is happening. How can I support you? And then I think there are other people who are like, oh, this one just wasn't meant to be, or maybe it's for the best, or you know, next time. And that was sometimes hard because I think I like to be positive and I'm a pretty positive person and I didn't want to dwell in sadness. But I think with these types of things, when people are having challenge, it's okay to be like, I'm really sorry if you're struggling and I'm here for you if you want to talk. And... Also, if you have had a struggle, let them know and acknowledge because so many people feel really alone and isolated when in reality, these challenges are pretty common and just no one talks about it. 
One thing I know that we've spoken about in the past in terms of healing and also managing the process is incorporating ritual into each stage of the journey. So I'd love to to hear a little bit about how you've approached that. Man, we have, we have so many examples. We got rocks, we got <laughs> beaches, we got little boxes, we got crystals, we got some more rocks. So much of it is with my body. And so it's been really important to me to figure out ways to incorporate Lee into the process. So for example, both of the fertility preservation rounds we've done, people had recommended to have your husband help with the shots. And we tried that the first night and Lee freaked out. So that was to stick their wife (laughs) with a needle. Yeah. So that really, so that didn't work. Anyone I know. So as this whole letting go of freedom, we had agreed after that first round failed that, you know, we'd never actually tried to get pregnant and we didn't know what was happening. So we agreed that we would try the next month instead of just jumping into another round of freezing. And the next month happened to be August, which happened to be Burning Man. And I was supposed to ovulate at Burning Man. And Burning Man is a place that's full of ritual. And I made my first ever offering for the temple where I made this whole poster with photos of different parts of the fertility journey. Explain the temple at Burning Man. Some listeners might not know that, what that is. You do it. The temple is the center of Burning Man. It's like the spiritual home. And it's meant to be a place where people mourn loss. So people in their lives or concepts or anything. It's very somber, but beautiful place. So Becca made a poster for it. Yeah. And it's also about a place to kind of let go of things you need to let go of. So I made a poster and wrote this this whole letter about how I was letting go of my need to control my fertility and that we were ready to step into this next phase, try to conceive and see what would happen. And so we put that out there. We also, I think like throughout the week, shared that this was our intention for the week and that we were hoping to conceive a child. I have to say that that was a little uncomfortable for me. I don't know why, but like the people knew that we were trying to conceive is like this interesting thing. I, I realize I shouldn't have shame about it, but I mean, imagine you're out to dinner and you're just like, oh, we're about to go have sex now. I don't know why that's a weird thing in our society, but it is. But sex has shame around it in our in our society. And that's interesting because it's the it's what's meant to be the reason how or why we're here to, to procreate. I think that's a really good point. Side Everyone note. talks about, oh, baby, or we're pregnant. And I agree, like no one really talks about that process at all of getting there. And I remember you being a little uncomfortable, but it was like we were in the land of intention setting and I was pretty open and outward about it. But it worked. We conceived. And unfortunately, that pregnancy didn't stick. We lost it at 10 weeks. So I think our next point of ritual Lee's therapist had suggested. You want to I share? think one thing that's important around that was we decided that to tell people very early that we were pregnant. And I think part of it was that we didn't want there to be shame. People don't tell people because of potential miscarriages. And our thinking at the time was basically like, if there is a miscarriage, then people will understand what we're going through. So that's a good thing. I don't know. We've never really talked about that decision. Are we happy that we told people this early? A hundred percent. I think what someone had shared with me is like, share your news with whoever you would want to share, even if it doesn't work out. And we have such great friends and community that I think it was so much easier to then say it didn't work out. It would have been kind of uncomfortable had we not told people and then had a miscarriage. It sounds like being candid about your experiences has allowed for your community to support you more deeply. And in the same way that it's allowed our community to help us, I also think it's allowed us to help so many others. I know I have multiple friends who are like, 
because you shared that you had had XYZ happen, I feel more comfortable talking about this or asking these questions, or I've been able to have this conversation with my husband. We were starting to speak a little bit about some of the ritual around the loss and how the loss impacted you. One thing that was hard is we had a lot of time to think about like, how do we grieve or how do we do this? Because we learned that we were going to have a miscarriage in our first OBGYN appointment at the hospital where they did the ultrasound and then said, it looks from the size of everything, it looks like the pregnancy stopped growing at six weeks, but your body's still holding on to it. And so I was told this is probably going to, the words they use is take care of itself, where I'll probably pass it sort of like an intense period. So let's just wait and see. And it might take up to a week. And sure enough, I started spotting about three days later and then ultimately had one day where it was just like a very intense period. And then the pregnancy was kind of over. Lee's therapist actually had suggested to him that there's important rituals and doing something to honor Yeah, doing something to grieve and to honor that is like an important part of the process to recover. And so I came up with the idea of going and doing a little funeral ceremony. We went to the beach at Land's End, which actually was like right below where we had gotten engaged and is a special place for us. And we built a bonfire and we had this little box that we put in all these just little things that reminded us of like the journey towards that pregnancy. So I put like some dust from Burning Man, a pine cone from a hike we'd gone on the day after we learned we would have the miscarriage, just little like tokens. I wrote something on a piece of paper of what I wish this could have been, but it wasn't. And like, that's life. And so we burned, sorry, I'm getting emotional. We burned that. And then Lee took the ashes and like threw them out in the ocean. And for us, it was like we held hands and it was like, this is really sad and we're sending it out into the universe and it's not the end of this journey for us and we're going to continue. Yeah, it was sad. Yeah. I think the other thing to share that's like between both of us is that I think people deal with grief differently. My strategy was to move on fast and try to move on quickly. And maybe that's like a defense mechanism to not actually feel the pain. And I think there was a little bit, and there still is a little bit of like you wishing that because you were in so much pain that I am making sure that I understood that. Is that true? I think sometimes I was like, are you sad? Because I, for like a week or two after that happened, I would just have days where I would cry and was just sad and you didn't cry, but I knew you were sad. And you, you did say at one point you were more concerned about me, that you hadn't actually felt connected to that pregnancy. I had because my whole body felt so different. Didn't think of it the way that you did as like a child yet. I think that's probably normal for for a man. And it makes sense for a woman because you're literally holding a a human life in in your body. So for me, there's just that that, that visceral connection with it is just not the same. But there is a visceral connection with you and I love you. And when you're upset, I hated that. So that was really the biggest issue for me. I tend to want to move on and, you know, you can't change the past. There's nothing we could have done about this. So yeah just go forward. Yeah. And I think one one thing that's interesting is so we ended up then waiting kind of my body healed and we tried again and we did get pregnant again in January. And this one, there's a weird intuition, but I knew immediately I was like, this doesn't feel the same. This doesn't feel right. And my, I think both my brain and my body, that one ended up, it's not really called a miscarriage. It was called a chemical pregnancy because I lost that at five weeks, but I was so much less sad. I went into it being like, this doesn't feel right. I don't feel connected to it. And, and when that wasn't a successful pregnancy, it was sad, but I think way less traumatic and sort of like I bounced right back like in a few days and was kind of like, that yeah. was really unfortunate. I think the thing that was interesting 
interesting for me to learn about this from the man's perspective. I think a lot of this, by the way, is like the man figuring out what the hell's going on with women. <laughs> but anyway, the thing that I didn't understand is that this is pretty common. Like the type of chemical pregnancy is pretty common. And the number of miscarriages is vastly undercounted because these things are not counted in them. So it's quite common for folks to have this. And most people don't actually pay attention to it, don't know that they've had it. That was pretty interesting. One in one in four pregnancies ends in loss. Right. And that's not even counting the chemical miscarriage. So it not only sounds like there has been a difference between the losses, it also seems like there's been a change in the shape of the grief over time. When you think back to the initial loss to now, is there a way that you think of it or conceive of of it differently in the trajectory of your fertility journey. There was just so much built up to that. Like I felt like we were working our way towards that first pregnancy for so long. And I really felt connected to that pregnancy, like my whole body, my energy. We were so excited. And I think we're honestly a little jaded right now, but our own experience has almost trained us to not take things for granted and to be skeptical. Tomorrow is actually what would have been the due date for this pregnancy. And we're taking the afternoon off. We're going back to where we had the bonfire and we're doing another ceremony to take a moment, pause, set an intention and like, what is our next step? And I, I honestly couldn't tell you what would have been the due date of that the second one because it was just like that didn't work out and this first one was just really it was my first ever pregnancy and it was a really big thing for us it seems like it's really easy for this journey to become the central focus of your life what other steps did you take to sort of give your mind emotions partnership a break from focusing on this area and maybe reorienting it towards others I think in the past year or so, even as there has been a fair amount of grief, I would still say overall our life's been great and that there's a lot more joy than there is pain. One of the moments where I was like totally happy, we went to Mexico City over New Year's with some friends and went out one night and like just danced our tails off. And I've always loved dancing. And I really felt like I was getting back in my body and just so full of joy and so grateful to be there. And I think it's really brought Lee and I closer. I, there's certain friends of mine who like we've gotten incredibly close because they're also going through these things. We kind of have a joke like we'll say like, oh, where are you in your cycle? Or we'll joke that there's a feeling of sometimes living our lives in two-week increments of get your period, test for ovulation, try to conceive, see if you're pregnant in two weeks. If you're not, you have your period. And like I actually have a few friends where we just update each other now. And that was so foreign to what it was like before, but where we broke some boundary and we, we share with each other the failures each month if it doesn't happen. Having a loss or a miscarriage is a really sad thing, but there's so much more to life. And I think for us, yes, we want to have children. Our preference has been, can we have biological children? But if that doesn't happen, there's so many other options and there's a lot more in life that that brings us joy. When you both were starting your fertility journey, one of the things that was coming up in terms of the timeline was this loss of the sense of freedom. And a lot has happened over the last two, two and a half years. I'm wondering how you think about starting a family now. I'm excited about it. And it feels like the right natural step. It's like there's no hesitation. I understand that it will mean a loss of freedom, but it comes with a child, which is amazing. I'm excited about that. And I don't, I don't think of it the same way. I think I've also seen you be influenced. Like you had a few friends who always thought they didn't want children and then ended up having children close to age 40 mm. who then became super dads and they're obsessed with their children. And so it's been, I think, really good to see a few of your friends who maybe were the ones saying, oh, you guys have time to now just be like so convinced that this is the best. And they live similar lives to us and they're still really happy. Two questions that we like to ask everyone that joins the podcast is what's one thing that you feel like you've learned about your body as part of this process? The genetic imprint of 
of our health at time in which we're conceiving really matters. I also think about the epigenetics of the things in, that we can pass on to our children through gene, like genes and experience and how the spirit of where we are as we conceive, I think, is something is real. These are things I've thought about more than ever. The condition in which we conceive makes an imprint on our child. And, you know, this is deeper in some levels, but our parents' own stuff comes in as our, on us and it goes down generationally. You got really interested in like the Jewish inherited trauma and learning more about that. Yeah. I have learned so much about my body. <laughs> Tony Westfield and Taking Charge of Fertility was really the starting point for me and such an amazing resource. I think for any women, I always recommend now if you're in your 30s, pay the 200 to $400 and go to a fertility clinic to get a consult and just learn what you're working with because – you may be surprised and it's helpful just to have that so you can then use that information to, to make decisions to either preserve your future fertility or change your plans. Also, stress is a huge piece related to fertility. I also have done a ton to really manage stress, manage nutrition, different things. And I think that has been helpful in terms of even with our losses, been pretty successful at conceiving, at least initially. And I think it was helpful for this last round of egg freezing too. You learned so much about your body we started a podcast about it. Yeah. Just share it with everyone. <laughs> and Lee, I love what you say about the condition that we are in when we conceive matters. I think intentionality is something that really is a red thread through your story. And I'm going to modify our last question that we ask a little bit to talk about what you just spoke about in terms of stress. This is a time for the world where we're all facing unprecedented challenges um, and stressors. And so I'd love to know, how are you using your voice, particularly during this time, and particularly in service of people being more intentional around around their lives and managing stress. In my day-to-day -day job, I'm talking to entrepreneurs every day and there's a bunch of people we invested in that are going through a lot of stressful times. So I'm trying to be a coach and a resource for them and it just keeps going. So, you know, you got to keep it up. For me, I think depending on what people are going through, like I've definitely had a lot of friends really stressed about job stuff and helping remind we're going through a, a global pandemic, the likes of which the whole world is grappling with and that we've never seen and things are going to be different and that's okay. And then I think another thing I've been really aware of is everyone's just dealing with their own shit and the way that people think about how important or upsetting things are matters to them. And so yes, COVID-19 is a major thing right now and it's getting a ton of attention. But that doesn't mean that if someone's upset about something else or focused on something else and maybe not always keeping the impact of COVID front of mind, that that's a big deal. And so I think I've been putting attention towards validating if people are sad or have feelings about other things, like saying, I'm here for you and, and it's valid to be sad about other things too. So I think telling people, make sure you take time for yourself and be balanced and take care of your needs is really important. Thank you both so much for your vulnerability. I know there's so much more to go into and coming up on a future episode, we'll learn more. Thank you for listening to this episode of Our Bodies, Our Voices podcast, where I interviewed my co-host Becca and her husband, Lee. I'm grateful for their vulnerability and candor, and I admire how they've been able to turn their experiences, both painful and joyful, into an opportunity for connection. To hear more episodes or to get in touch, please visit ourbodiesourvoices.com. Catch you later.